Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. This podcast is sponsored by Boehringer Engelheim. As a global leader in equine health, Boehringer Engelheim's main goal is to improve equine patients' health and quality of life. Boehringer Engelheim is dedicated to providing the latest product technology for the treatment and prevention of diseases in horses. Learn more about our product portfolio and what we can offer the veterinary community by visiting buy-vetmedica.com. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Mike Pannell, and welcome to another episode of AAP Practice Life Podcast. Today, we have a very timely, personally, a subject, and we're going to be talking about mothers in practice, uh, but we're going to look at it not only from an associate's point of view, but also from a practice owner's point of view, a collegial point of view. So let's introduce who our guests are. Uh, we'll start first, which is literally up the straight from me, Dr. Marissa Markey. Marissa, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. And so why are you on this podcast? other than I invited you? Uh, I'm an associate veterinarian. I actually work for Dr. Pannell, Mike, and I am just going into my seventh month of my pregnancy. So we'll be going on that leave soon. Right. So actually, Marissa was the one that sort of inspired me for this subject because in Canada, where we're based, veterinarians or anybody really can go on mat leave for up to 18 months combination of maternity paternity leave so it's a bit different in Canada and we're much more similar to many of the European countries let's go on down across the river across the border Laura welcome hi thanks I'm Laura Jeffsegas I'm an owner at Rhinebeck Equine I have two kids of my own boys they're seven and four and a half and I had my first one when I was an associate in the middle of breeding season, and I'm an internal medicine specialist, so that was very challenging. But I also think it's worth mentioning that I went through four years of infertility treatment to have my first son. Um, So at that point, I had given up on trying to time things for my job. (laughs) And my second son was born in September when I was a partner. So I've experienced maternity leave from from both sides of it. And now actually our two newest hires were um, both pregnant when we hired them. So we've had two two maternity leaves in the last year. And I think that we're evolving as as a practice and trying to figure out ways to support all of our doctors. We also do have multiple uh, veterinarians who came to us with young children. So even the, our, our male owners also have young kids at home. So I think that is a helpful perspective. Excellent. And then finally, uh, we're joined on the other side of the continent, uh, Dr. Wendy Krebs. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, participate in this. It's particularly timely for me as well. As of tomorrow, um, two of our associates are going on simultaneous maternity leave. And then we additionally have one other uh, staff member and assistant who will be going next month on maternity leave. So yes, it's it's a very timely topic. I too am a mom. I have a 10-year-old son and a seven-year-old daughter. 
I was fortunate to be an owner for both of my maternity leaves, which does ease things a little bit. But you never quite know what to expect. I had preterm labor with my daughter and had to be on bed rest for the last two weeks of my pregnancy and then delivered early and had a NICU baby. So I've kind of experienced it from both ends as well, and not just the straightforward maternity leave, but the sort of unexpected curveballs that can get thrown at you as well. I am looking forward to this discussion. There's going to be a lot to uh, discuss. And I think, Wendy, you're just talking about one of your uh, vet assistants or support staff is going on maternity leave. So I think it's really interesting that a lot of this could apply not just to veterinarians, but also to support staff in a practice too. So. Mm-hmm. Marissa, we're going to start with you because you're closest to it. (laughs) Working during pregnancy, and I I bring this up just because we're working through it right now. And So tell me some of the factors that you are having to consider two months shy of giving birth. I think the biggest thing really is recognizing the individuality of everyone's pregnancy. And some people, you know, a lot of times I disclose to clients that I'm pregnant and, oh, I loved being pregnant. It was great. I'll tell you, my first four months were terrible. (laughs) Trying to explain it to people who haven't been pregnant and actually trying to explain it to Mike, I said, it is like the worst hangover I've ever had all day, every day. Mm -hmm. The term morning sickness is a misnomer. It is not just in the morning. It is always. Yes. So that first trimester was really hard. And I was forced to disclose to everyone early. Everyone on our team here knew way before my family did, because especially with COVID, I had to be able to say, yeah, I'm really sick. I promise it's not COVID. Um, (laughs) I'm actually pregnant. So they knew at like eight weeks because they knew they had to pull over the truck real fast if I said pull over. (laughs) Second trimester has definitely been easier, but now I'm entering the third and it's definitely learning some compassion for my body as I can't do all the things I normally can do. You know, putting on my socks is getting hard as it turns out. So I think every trimester is very individual and every person is extremely individual. And I think Wendy touched on as well, we can make the plans for when I, you know, I think I'm going to be done. But if the doctor says bed rest, then suddenly all the plans go out the window too. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Of um, my two currently pregnant employees, my partner employee, one is pregnant with twins and is 40. And uh, so she's not actually technically due till August, but her maternity leave is starting now because she just is not able to stay on her feet. And then Dr. Finley is actually scheduled for a C-section less than a week from now and is still working today. So there are some very individual circumstances beyond our control. I think it's really hard as veterinarians. I think we all tend to like to have control over things and to be able to plan. And so I think that the the level of things that all of a sudden are completely out of your control and the lack of ability to, to know what to expect at any stage, you know, from the, for me, just trying to be pregnant in the first place to the pregnancy to the labor, it just makes it such a challenge. And I think having that openness and, you know, just being able to respect everyone's individual experience. It's hard for both the the pregnant veterinarian and the employer. So Laura, carrying on with that theme though, so you talked in your introduction that you just hired two new associates that were pregnant when they joined. And I, I know I know a bit about your practice and I know there have been other 
not just veterinarians, but other people, uh, support staff pregnant as well. So as a practice owner, it's one thing to look at it as of a mom or you being involved as a mom, but now you've got to look at it as a practice owner. So you got to put on another hat. What are some of the, the factors or considerations that, you know, you've had to deal with or you have learned over the years? First and foremost, trying to keep everyone safe. And, you know, as Marissa alluded to, I think it is important to be able to at least feel comfortable telling, you know, some of your employer staff, the appropriate people, um, so that they can take the right steps to to keep you safe and help make sure you have enough support staff. It's certainly something that's much easier to get through when you have help with you. And then, you know, obviously just trying to deal with scheduling and how their schedule is going to be covered when they are out or if they need to be out unexpectedly. And then, you know, trying to make a plan for how and when they're going to come back. You know, in this country, unfortunately, you know, where I think we're all incredibly jealous of uh, <laughs> the maternity leaves that Canada and the European countries <laughs> allow, um, we all tend to go back to work a lot faster. Um, I think many of us, depending on our situations, probably faster than than we should. Uh, so I think, you know, just trying to make that plan. And, and I think that the more open communication that can happen the better because I know that I had sometimes have a hard time uh, not projecting what my own experience was like um, and just what my own personality is like. I went back to work very quickly and I'm someone who does not do well um, on maternity leave, but I fully respect that not everyone is like that. And so I think just being able to have an open, ongoing conversation um, between employer and employee about what they think they're going to want, and then understand that that may evolve with time, you know, throughout the pregnancy. And then also, you know, as a mom with young kids, I mean, I think it's, we almost get too hung up on the nine months of gestation, um, because it's going to be a lifelong change that you have to be able to accommodate for. So yes, getting through the pregnancy safely is the first step. Um, but it's really kind of figuring out how that veterinarian is going to fit back into the practice going forward. And, and Wendy, what was your experience as a, as a practice owner? Yeah, we have tried to have conversations with our um, associates sort of early in the process to find out what they think that they're going to need in terms of maternity leave. Um, and rather than, you know, trying to dictate that as a practice owner, um, ask them what works well for them. And that's been a different answer really for every um, parent so far. And of course, there are the variables like what that individual child is going to be like, are they going to sleep through the night? Or are they not going to do that, you know, for a year, that again, can change after the birth. But we've had some associates that wanted to come back at six weeks and did so successfully and had the family support network, you know, to enable that. Um, and others that requested a four month leave and knew they were going to need that long. And then even maybe came back on a altered schedule after that. So I think Laura makes a good point looking into the future. I think for many of us coming back to, you know, a five or six day a week work schedule as a parent is probably not realistic. And that should be part of the discussion as well as, you know, do we need to change staffing long term and potentially, you know, hire more associates to um, support part time, you know, or 
they might still be 50 hour weeks, but so-called part-time positions, you know, for the working parents as well. Yeah. Just uh, Laura's comment about in Canada where you have up to 18 months. And I sort of look at our colleagues in the States and I know how people come back much quicker, but when somebody's away for a year, as a practice owner, we have to build in capacity. When you figure that 80% of graduating uh, vet students are female, most often they're the ones that are going to have, well, they're the ones that are going to be pregnant, but they're most often going to be the ones taking care afterwards. And, you know, a year to six, 18 months is a long time. So we almost always have to think if we have a multi-vet practice that you actually have to have that extra person there. Mm -hmm. Because often it just happens and you have to be prepared as a business owner. So Marissa, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you're servicing your clients or uh, uh, transitioning clients or preserving client relationships as you're working on moving out of day-to-day practice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm I'm really lucky in that aspect, or I I guess it's not luck. We work really hard at having a team group practice Mm -hmm. where we don't take ownership of clients. So there aren't really clients who are mine. And they know the rest of the team. And so as soon as I tell them that I'm pregnant, they know that my medical records are complete and the whole team knows about their horses and we all practice very similarly and they are going to be well taken care of by the whole team, no matter who shows up for that period of time that I'm gone. And for the most part, we've already set ourselves up that they're very, very comfortable with that. So I think I'm really lucky, or I guess I chose to be part of a group practice instead of an individual practice owner um, or a solo ambulatory vet, that they're already prepared for that. They're prepared for other people showing up. And, you know, we just hired a new vet who's going to be taking over a lot of my caseload. And so she's spending a lot of the time on the road with me right now, just meeting people And so far, that's been really well received because we have a really great group of clients who are actually quite supportive. Wonderful. And how about yourself, Laura? How are you working on preserving those client relationships? I think as Marissa alluded to, I mean, I think we're in an easier situation as a group practice. And to me, it's one of the great things about group practice. It's a whole different ballgame for those solo practitioners out there or, you know, even just smaller smaller practices. So I think communicating with the clients, as Marissa said, that you know their needs will be taken care of. Um, we do have, we have clients that have their regular veterinarian. They know that for emergencies and if that person's not available, then they will be seeing somebody else. Um, but we do have some pretty tight um, bonds with clients. But again, that equation is different for us because you know, so far, we certainly haven't had anyone gone for close to uh, 18 months. So I think it's, uh, you know, for us, it's sort of how do we get through this uh, shorter period of time. Um, But I do think it puts a lot of pressure on the veterinarians in some situations to maintain communication with clients when, in my opinion, they really should be able to be 100% focused on their (laughs) themselves and their newborn child. And so, you know, I certainly want to create a situation where they feel that their clients are going to be taken care of and they don't need to be touching base. But, you know, I think that we tend to uh, make ourselves very available to clients um, and that becomes hard when you're not available. 
Yeah. And how about yourself, Wendy? I mean, what are your experiences with transitioning clients or preserving that relationship? You know, we are um, similar to both Laura and Marissa's practices in that we're a group practice as well with a relatively shorter maternity leaves. And I will say that for some of our associates, they were pretty concerned before they went on maternity leave that they were going to you know, lose their clientele and you know they were going to find new vets and not come back um, to that veterinarian, so to speak, after they come back to work. But really, for the most case, our clientele has been pretty great that way. And it really did not cause the waves that people were concerned about. Um, people were pretty understanding. And um, there may have been some clients that sort of, you know, changed who their veterinarians were, but it all, you know, worked out for the best, honestly. That has not been a huge, you know, hurdle or um, problematic part of maternity leave for us, honestly. Great. I would echo that that concern. You know, first step is get them taken care of by another vet and reassure them. And then my brain goes, what happens when I come back? <laughs> Are you going to want me back? <laughs> well, I think that's a normal thing to worry about. But the good ones, you know, you will preserve that relationship. Yeah. So, Marissa, other than putting on socks... What are some of the physical challenges that you're having that, you know, let's talk about certain procedures you can, cannot do. What are some of the safety uh, considerations that you have to think about now that you may not have before? Yeah, I, first of all, I will reference Dr. Amy Grice's articles from AEP in 2020. I'm so happy that that conversation is getting a little more official and out there because she wrote some great papers on working during pregnancy and safety considerations that need to be considered. And I think Laura can probably, after me, talk a little bit more about where this comes into play when you're going through fertility treatments, because those first few weeks are incredibly important. And that's when you really want to start, you know, limiting your radiation exposure and limiting your ISO exposure. And those are the moments when you don't actually know for sure if you're pregnant. I'm not sure what the system is like in the U.S., but I know I, you know, I did my research for radiation workers here, and I'm still comfortable doing radiographs to some extent, and I actually have two dosimeters that I wear. So I wear one for me and then one that is actually clipped to my belly underneath my gown, and that gets tracked every two weeks, and the government will tell me if I have to stop. And so far, We've been really good about scheduling appointments so that I'm preserving my radiation exposure for times when I really need to use it, such as emergencies. So the rest of the team is doing the pre-purchases or the big lamenesses. And so far, that's been okay. But radiation was a big concern for me. I know there was a recent conversation about inhalant anesthesia on the women in equine practice group. Uh, we don't do general anesthesias here, so that wasn't a concern for me, but it certainly sounds like it needs to be a serious consideration in surgical facilities. And then there's just, there's the looking into the random drugs. And I think this needs to be readily available information, mostly I think for our assistants, because they don't have the pharmacology background we have to know, hey, I probably shouldn't touch the mesoprostol because we use it for GI inflammation, but it's an abortion drug. So those things like the mesoprostol and the reproduction drugs and certain antibiotics that you just need to be careful about how you're handling them or find someone else to handle them. And that that was all the original considerations for sure. And then kind of the physical stuff, I seem to be finding out by trial and error as I go along. And, you know, a horse tries to jerk its leg away from me and I realize that my core isn't there anymore. 
and uh, kind of learning, yeah, trial and error, what my body limitations are now. Interesting. So, Laura, yeah, let's great segue, Marissa. Thank you. So, what were some of the safety precautions that you had to take? Yeah, I mean, I'm really lucky because I always have techs and or interns around me, and I also, as an internal medicine specialist, take very few radiographs. Um, so, uh, the inhaler anesthesia I actually let Wendy talk about, but um, you know, I am sometimes in surgery, but I honestly found that I could just sort of subtly avoid a lot of situations when I was in that time frame of not knowing yet if I was pregnant and having just done another embryo transfer. And, you know, honestly, I was, I was in that position a lot. So um, I sort of just lived in this state of like, maybe I'm pregnant, maybe I'm not for a very, very long time. I was definitely a lot more careful about medications and I tended to just wear nitrile gloves um, sort of as a default where I would not have otherwise. But I think that, you know, whether it's someone who is uh, trying to be pregnant or thinks they might be early pregnancy, you know, I think if you have one or two trusted people that know your situation, they can also be helpful at just sort of letting you, helping you avoid those situations. I mean, there, there was a time with my first pregnancy um, that the interns caught on because I did sort of like jet out of the room whenever somebody was taking radiographs. But at that point, I wasn't really bothered by it too much. <laughs> so. so how about yourself, Wendy? Yeah, I've uh, tapped the interns pretty heavily um, for pregnancy um, relief, both, you know, I think the physical parts of it, you know, restraining difficult horses and doing the nerve blocking and the flexions and things like that. It's kind of a win-win situation because they get the hands on and um, you get to step back a little bit and keep yourself safe. And if you are trying to be subtle about things early on, especially, again, you can just phrase that as a learning opportunity for the interns and, hey, would you mind taking you know this set of radiographs for us? And whether you let the intern know or not, make it a win-win situation there. I also think that uh, having a very competent handler is really, really key. You know, as Marissa said, your your balance is profoundly different and your core strength. And so having someone that can make sure that that horse gets out of your way is really, really important. Interesting. So whether it's six weeks, a year, 18 months, would love to have a discussion with Laura and Wendy and sneak preview for Marissa. You know, you return to practice. So what surprised you the most about returning to practice? Let's start with you, Laura. I returned to practice seven weeks after having a C-section and went back to full time in the middle of foaling season. I was really, really tired. <laughs> um, dysfunctionally tired at times. Uh, I'm very lucky because I have a very supportive spouse who was able to take time off and was very, very willing to help with childcare. But I was, I, you know, I breastfed my son. And so I was getting up in the middle of the night and those times did not coincide always with the times I was answering phone calls and coming in for sick holes. So I think that just the, the sheer exhaustion is hard to overestimate. I fortunately, I had pretty easy babies and physically I did okay despite having two C-sections. Um, 
but it's just, it was just a lot. And you know, probably in hindsight was not, I wouldn't, I don't recommend it for anyone else. Um, but it was important to me to come back as soon as I could. So not wise. Not wise. In hindsight, not wise. Yeah. <laughs> How about yourself, Wendy? I also came back fairly quickly after um, my pregnancies, the first being a C-section and the second, fortunately not, but came back on a little bit of a modified schedule. It was the busy season, but I tried to end my days by about three whenever possible and get home and have, you know, a little bit of quiet time. And then after a few weeks of that kind of resumed a full schedule. Um, So that worked well for me to be able to still be there and be involved, but not be quite as exhausted by the, you know, full day length. We also have tried to respect in terms of emergency duties, taking people off of emergency, sort of at least a month before their due date. And then obviously during their maternity leave, and then sort of slowly when they're ready, getting them back after the baby arrives. So I think that the emergency duty was one of the hardest things for me to have to leave at midnight and hand your partner a very unhappy baby um, who might be breastfed and, you know, doesn't take to a bottle well. It ends up being fairly tough on the family dynamic. And so having those discussions with your partner in advance and, you know, if they are able to take some paternity or maternity leave as well to help you out, to sort of stagger that, that might be a great idea or to uh, look at alternative support systems. I'm super lucky to have a mom who um, has participated a lot in the upbringing of my children. And I think to have to go to a traditional daycare scenario, especially if you're coming back after six or eight weeks, would be pretty excruciatingly hard. So I think, think ahead quite a bit about childcare, especially for those, you know, first few months afterwards, because that's going to be tough. Right. And I think COVID has changed that dynamic also. In what way? I would have more hesitation sending my newborn to daycare now than I did when I had mine. Absolutely. I think if you don't have a family member available, um, exploring nannies and au pairs is probably going to be a lot more conducive to an equine practitioner's life than a traditional daycare scenario. Right. So one of the questions we had talked about just before in preparing for this. And I think this was a great question is, so you're a young vet. A lot of people are graduating right about this time of year. They're looking at starting internships, starting a practice. So you're a young vet joining a practice. How do you assess if the practice is family friendly? Let's say in in a way that's not going to um, put a negative mark against you. So maybe Marissa, maybe we can start with you. How, How would you give any tips? And it's interesting, it leads in from what Wendy was just talking about. And I think veterinarians by nature are planners. And for me, first and foremost, we set ourselves up in a place where I'm close to family. And my husband has a job that's going to be flexible if and when we had a family. And that was my first criteria. And I got really lucky that I also found a position that fit that within that geographical region. But I do think a little bit of this needs to be the evolution of the practice owners and contracts and that discussion that it should just be readily available information so that new graduates don't have to feel uncomfortable asking. And I think having that information available up front tells you a ton about the practice itself 
that they're they're willing to be open and discuss that possibility because we are a predominantly female profession now and it's probably going to come up. You know, I don't think that's a discussion Mike and I had when I first started here is what is the mat leave policy? I didn't have to say those words. I also knew the practice and I knew that there were people with children working here and they had been through mat leaves um, and I knew how that had gone. So a little bit of it is researching who else works there and do they have families and how has that been? But I would love to see a shift in the availability of that information for new people. It's almost becomes it's so hard to find vets now. It becomes a competitive advantage to a practice that if you can be very forward and, and come right out there and just say, this is our policy and this is what we're all about. I think as a practice owner, it's to your advantage now. How about yourself, Wendy? How What was your experience or what would you recommend to a young vet joining a practice to see if it's a family-friendly practice? Yeah, I think it um, is certainly easier if you're not the first employee to um, be exploring the maternity leave question um, and you can uh, talk to those other employees that have gone through that with the practice and find out how that worked for them. You know, which is not to say that some first time maternity leave practice owners can't do a great job of it, too. But it, it you know, might be useful to look for that track record. Like you alluded to, Mike, as an employer um, or a potential employer, I like to start that conversation, you know, honestly, even in my advertising and let people know that we are a family friendly practice and alternative schedules are an option. And I think that gives us a competitive advantage, especially in the tight veterinarian job market these days to put that best foot forward and let people know that we can accommodate that lifestyle and we, we know how to do it and we have that track record. So I would make it part of the early conversation. So there's not surprises on either side, you know, when that comes to pass ultimately. Hmm. Any suggestions from you, Laura, on this? Yeah. I mean, I just, I echo the other comments. I mean, we we're advertising currently and we also are just being very open about it. I, I feel like I would rather just, have that information available and make the applicant feel very comfortable discussing it rather than put the onus on them to maybe feel uncomfortable in bringing it up. I mean, honestly, with the way the market's going, I just assume that everyone's going to have kids. If they personally choose not to, then that's great too. And I want to support them in other ways, but I'd rather just assume that that's what's happening and have a good plan in place for them. We've recently been able to start offering um, paid leave, which is sadly usual in the U.S. And I think we just need to keep evolving, as Marissa said. I also, you know, so when I came to Rhinebeck Equine, I was actually in the midst of like full-on fertility treatments, often having to go to the doctor three times a week. And I didn't feel, personally, I didn't feel right not having that discussion, you know, before I even came. And, you know, for, I was fortunate enough to have that conversation with Amy Grace um, at the time, and she was wonderfully supportive. And, and so, you know, they knew before I came that that was going to be something I was dealing with. And I, even though, you know, they couldn't legally ask me about it, I, I just would not have felt right coming in. And, and honestly, if, you know, if you're looking for a job and you ask about maternity leave and you don't get warm, fuzzy feelings, to me, that's a huge red flag. And I think talking to other vets in the practice that have been through it, and even just the vets that have kids in the practice, even if they didn't go through maternity leave there, can be really valuable because the only thing that's 
expected about having kids is all the unexpected things that come up. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's a probably going back to by being forward that you're a family friendly employer. I think we've been talking very on the the traditionals, you know, female having babies, but I think more and more we're seeing of same-sex couples adopting and uh, I think similar considerations apply. And so you 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 may have somebody that wants to adopt or or have a surrogacy or what have you. I think that's being a good employer, you those are the things you offer and you're open to and as you said it becomes a competitive advantage, but it's probably just the right thing to do as well too. And I think to that point there's a bit, maybe I'm seeing a generational shift and the men of my generation want to be involved. They want to take, you know, parental leave and they want to be part of it. So even for, you know, hiring male associates, that could be something mm-hmm. that they're considering and want to know about as well. Mm-hmm. Great point. Absolutely. So hindsight is is wonderful. We learn so much from it. So Wendy, let's start with you. So what do you know now that you wish you knew as a mom to be in a, in a practice owner? Probably that the hardest part was not the pregnancy itself, but the coming back to work with small children and the amount of planning that you need to um, put really in. It's, there's some very intense planning that goes on with juggling small children and equine practice for sure. You know, uh, we don't work a nine to five schedule. Um, so you have to think about um, plans for those kids, nighttime and early morning ER calls after your spouse has already left for work. Honestly, that is something that I think doesn't always get planned out well enough. And that can be an instigator for women, especially to leave equine practice when that um, balancing act becomes unsustainable. For sure. How about yourself, Laura? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually right now texting my nanny to make new arrangements because I have an emergency coming in. (laughs) So well said, Wendy. Yeah. I, I had the plan as Marissa said for, the spouse with the flexible job and the willingness to participate. My, my husband's a teacher and our plan was always that he would be the primary child care provider. I really stupidly underestimated how much I would want to be involved in my child's lives, um, especially now that they're older and you know, have activities and I really want to be there for soccer and baseball and, and all these things and just see them. So that was the biggest uh, mind shift for me. And, you know, I'm very fortunate now because we do have another internist. So I'm, my quality of life has improved. She's one of the ones out on maternity leave currently. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that, you know, as we, it, it's that whole practice evolution of you know, trying to find a good balance for everyone. I 100% love to work. Wonderful. And, and Marissa, so uh, if what you know now, what you wish you knew six, seven months ago. <laughs> you know what? I think every day is a new discovery on this journey. And <laughs> definitely we're, we're at the point now of starting to have that conversation of, well, we've been having it for a while of what does this look like at the end of mat leave? Like you said, you know, the pregnancy is one piece and mat leave is another. And then life afterwards is really the whole ball game, and what that looks like coming back. And you know, having those discussions, because like Laura said, I love my job, I want to come back. But I know there's going to be a big pull in the other direction to go home at a normal hour. (laughs) So it's a little bit of finding, 
it'll be interesting finding that balance. And the exhaustion of pregnancy is starting to teach me that early. <laughs> so I guess the theme I'm I'm picking up out of this is is expect the unexpected. Flexibility is has to be your secret weapon, and ideally ha- have a flexible and supportive partner support network around you. Absolutely, absolutely. This has been very informative. As I said, as a practice owner, I'm sort of learning this uh, through Marissa. We've had other uh, support staff and veterinarians in the past uh, pregnant and go on maternity leave. But I, going back to the original thought, everyone is different. And I think we just sort of have to approach that as a practice owner, as everyone is different and being open to whatever it may be and be as supportive as possible. Thank you, all three of you, for for joining this. I think uh, AEP members will get a lot out of this. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Meg. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org. This podcast is sponsored by Boehringer Engelheim. As a global leader in equine health, Boehringer Engelheim's main goal is to improve equine patients' health and quality of life. Boehringer Engelheim is dedicated to providing the latest product technology for the treatment and prevention of diseases in horses. Learn more about our product portfolio and what we can offer the veterinary community by visiting buy-vetmedica.com.